Somewhere, someplace, prehistoric monsters still roam in tropical jungles. It might be on an island or a plateau, under the core of the earth, or even on another planet. In most situations, dinosaurs and other animals from all periods of Earth's timeline live together, sometimes with human ancestors. We shouldn't look for these lands because each one has a volcano ready to explode, and it will once we arrive. On this episode, we're going to talk about those crazy Lost World films from the very first one until the 1970s. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkies. What about the Twinkies? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're a stupid mimes. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Hello. Welcome there to Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. My name is Jeff Kelly, and if this is your first time with us, you're in for a treat. I have a schedule throughout the month of what I do, but since this month had an extra week, I thought I'd do something a little different. And so for this episode, I'm going to talk about Lost World-type films. You know those films where a group of people find an island or a planet filled with prehistoric animals, dinosaurs, and such? That doesn't include films like The Giant Behemoth, The Beast from 2000 Fathoms, Godzilla, Gorgo, Reptilicus, Yangari, or even The Crater Lake Monster. While all those are fine films, they're not Lost World films. Now, one of the first films to feature humans with dinosaurs was most likely Brute Force by D.W. Griffith. Since then, there have been many films that teach us what life was like when dinosaurs and humans coexisted. Films like The Dinosaur and the Missing Link, A Prehistoric Tragedy, One Million Years B.C., When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth, and even Ringo Starr's Caveman. All entertaining and educational, but hardly a lost world type film. Now, as far as I know, the first one to come up with this idea was Jules Verne in his novel Journey to the Center of the Earth in 1864. And then in 1912, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had the novel The Lost World. And then in 1924, Edgar Rice Burroughs released the novel The Land That Time Forgot. Now, The Lost World was first made into a silent film in 1925 by Harry O. Hoyt, with stop-motion effects by Willis O'Brien. And he would, of course, go on to do the original King Kong a few years later. This is the story of Professor Challenger, who, after being ridiculed for his theory that dinosaurs could still be living on the Earth, leads an expedition to prove himself right. He's also trying to find the crew of the last expedition that went out to prove him right. Along on the journey are Paula White, whose father was one of those that disappeared, Edward Malone, a young reporter out to prove himself, sportsman Sir John Raxton, skeptical professor Summerlee, an Indian servant, and the challenger's butler. Because you have to bring your butler on an expedition. And of course, they find dinosaurs, ape men, and a monkey. 
They return with a brontosaurus who manages to escape and causes all types of problems. The film has some wonderful effects by O'Brien and is a little over an hour long. It's very enjoyable. Of course, like many of these stories, humans go into another world and begin shooting things whenever it's convenient. And hey, you gotta shoot something, am I right? For that, we have the big one, King Kong in 1933, which was followed up by Son of Kong in 1934. I don't really have to talk about these. I mean, we all know the story of Kong, right? An ape, Fay Ray, the Empire State Building, you know. But I did want to talk about the end of Son of Kong. That's because at the end of this movie, Skull Island crumbles and falls into the sea. That's the beginning of a long tradition in Lost World films, in which these lands that have survived millions of years suddenly crumble or are destroyed by a volcano. Next, we jump ahead to 1948 for Unknown Island, starring Virginia Gray, Philip Reed, Richard Denning, Barton McLean, and Ray Crash Corrigan. It was directed by Jack Bernhard and is in Cinecolor, and for 1948, the color looks pretty good. This is sort of King Kong without Kong. A young man, Ted, and his beautiful girlfriend, Carol, hire a ship to take them to a mysterious island that they believe has living dinosaurs. And guess what? It does. Look over there. What are they? Giant dinosaurs. 75 feet long if they're an inch. And as high as a two-story building. They lived millions of years ago. Some of them weighed over 20 tons. Don't worry, you'll have plenty of chances to photograph them and others. I guess you two didn't dream this up after all. Looks like we're going to be in for a little excitement, eh, Sanderson? Yeah, looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. Ted just wants to take some pictures of the beast because he thinks that'll make him famous. And once he's rich and famous, he and Carol can get married. Once there, however, the ship's captain, Tarnowski, decides he wants to bring back a dinosaur, a Ceratosaurus. Now, a Ceratosaurus looks a lot like a T-Rex, and I don't know much about them, but the ones in this film move really slow. I mean painfully slow. I mean, if you can walk at a decent pace, you wouldn't have a problem outrunning them. Now, the dinosaurs in this flick are mostly puppets, or maybe people in suits, probably both and are not convincing at all. In fact, they're pretty laughable. Besides the occasional crew member being killed, and natives who were dragged along, who just want to leave, the rest of the plot is about Carol and the men who love her. Ted is too obsessed with his pictures to pay attention to her, and that gives the opportunity for another crewman, John, to move in. The captain also has the hots for her, but he's suffering from jungle fever. So he kidnaps her. But luckily, the captain gets killed by a large prehistoric ape with fangs. So that problem is solved. Most entertaining part of this whole flick is watching the dinosaurs fight. Some real good unintentional laughs. Three years later, we have the film Two Lost Worlds, a James Arness independent black and white one hour long classic. Now, this film is narrated in the most unnecessary way, and that's never a good idea. The tropical sky that night looked down on a ragged, sprawling little group of people who were blind to its beauty. In the deep sleep of complete exhaustion, they were also deaf to the wind and to the raging surf that thundered behind them, as if it had been cheated of its human prey. 
In the morning, the immediate concern of the party was food and water, and the harsh, forbidding land. The silent watching vultures seemed to know, seemed to be waiting. It's the story of an American clipper ship in 1830 that's attacked by pirates. Arnest, playing a character named Kirk, gets hurt as they escape. They make it to a colony in Australia, so Kirk can get his treatment, but his ship is forced to leave without him. In the meantime, Kirk falls for the beautiful Elaine, played by Casey Rogers. Elaine, of course, already has a man, Martin, who wants to marry her. When the colony is invaded by pirates, Elaine is kidnapped and taken away. So the colonists, with James Arness as their leader, go after her in another ship. After the battle in which the young woman and her little sister are rescued, both ships sink. On the lifeboat, Kirk, Elaine, her younger sister, and Martin find an island. And finally, 42 minutes into a 57-minute movie, we get to dinosaurs. But the dinosaurs aren't the biggest horror in this movie. What is, is the fact that the group, desperate for water, find a pond to drink out of, which is little more than a large muddy puddle. (laughs) Do you know how many parasites and diseases must have been in that water? Anyway, the dinosaur footage was stock footage recycled from the film One Million Years B.C. from 1940. And they're basically lizards and baby crocodiles shot to look large. Now, as the crew rush to use a raft to get off the island, of course, a volcano erupts. But somehow they survive on the beach while the rest of the island is destroyed. And as luck would have it, Martin dies, which solves the love triangle issue. It's an odd film because the first 45 minutes is this swashbuckling pirate film and the lost world part is only in the last 12 minutes. And honestly, I don't recommend this film. It takes way too long to get to the dinosaur island, but at least it has a volcano destroying it all. And hey, isn't that what you want? And that brings us to Cesar Romero and the Lost Continent from 1951, a film by Sigmund Newfield produced by Robert L. Lippard. Libbard was a movie theater owner who made a, a lot of cheap pictures, and they don't get much cheaper than The Lost Continent. This film was featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000, and for those who know the episode, know that the film features rock climbing. Lots of rock climbing. Oh, come on, what is this? What is it they're looking for? They forgot. They don't even know. Come on, God, this why, is, This why? is a madhouse, why? a madhouse. Oh. Oh. I never knew mountain time was so slow. Kill them all, kill them, please, Come on, kill hey, them. you guys, calm down. Hey, it's only a movie, we can handle it, okay? Uh, okay, I guess you're right. Who are you? Where are we? Can we get a frame of reference or something, please? Oh, chill, chill, oh. It's okay. Whew. It's only rock climbing. Would someone please tell the director about compressing time through editing? Dun, 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 dun. Along with Cesar Romero, there's Hugh Beaumont and Sid Melton, a regular Lippert comic relief actor. The group is looking for a lost atomic-powered rocket in order to retrieve the vital scientific data. The beautiful Hilary Brooks is in the film for a few moments at the beginning, which is nice but has nothing to do with the rest of the flick. Now to get to the rocket, they need to climb a mountain. And that climbing scene literally takes 15 minutes. 15 minutes of uneventful rock climbing. 
And again, in the end, and for no reason, the mountain crumbles due to a volcano. What are the odds? Overall, this black and white film is pretty lame, because we need to wait almost an hour to see dinosaurs. In 1955, there was Journey to the Beginning of Time. This Czechoslovakian film by Karl Zeman is the story of four boys who take a raft trip. They go through a cave and wind up on an adventure through prehistory all the way to the beginning of time. Now, I watched the American release, and for that, a new beginning and end were shot at the Museum of Natural History in New York, with four New York boys playing the part of the Czech boys in the film, and so they're shot primarily from behind. Now, I don't know if this is in the original Czechoslovakian film or not, but in the American release, one of the boys narrates the full film, and it sounds a bit like a history lesson. Before the tertiary period began, our world passed through the Mesozoic era. It's middle life. The Mesozoic era began 180 million years ago. It was the age of dinosaurs. Strange effects during this film, a combination of stop motion and 2D animation. It's actually a pretty interesting little film that I enjoyed. It's on YouTube. And that brings us to Mr. Big, Bert I. Gordon, who gets into the action with his 1955 film King Dinosaur. The film stars William Bryant, Wanda Curtis, Douglas Henderson, and Patty Gallagher. This black and white film is about a group of four astronauts who land on a planet called Nova that has just entered the Earth's solar system. Yes, you heard right. Another planet entered our solar system. And, you know, I could be wrong. I'm not a scientist. But I would think that would affect the orbits of all the rest of the planets. But apparently not. Anyway, the four of them wind up on Nova... And they are scientists, and these so-called scientists find a kinkajou, which is often called a honey bear. But for some odd reason, they think it's a lemur. At one point, they also call crows vultures, and I repeat, these are scientists. Up till now, we've seen a lot of volcanoes destroy lost worlds, and that's all well and fine, but Bert I, well, he changed it up for this movie. He has one of the crew setting off an atomic bomb for no apparent reason at all. You all right? Yeah. Dad! I brought the atom bomb. I think it's a good time to use it. And the crew, well, they give themselves a whopping 30 minutes to run from the bomb before the mushroom cloud rises to the sky. But apparently, radiation doesn't affect them at all. We sure have done it. We brought civilization to planet Nova. Come on. Let's go home. This was Gordon's first film and was shot in seven days and was also featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Now, a couple of films from 1956 that I thought I'd mention, even though they don't fit today's subject, are The Beast of Hollow Mountain and The Mole People. Hollow Mountain only has one dinosaur, a T-Rex, and is more like the giant behemoth type film. And The Mole People is sort of a Lost World type film, but not one with monsters and dinosaurs. It has, well, mole people. The next film is The Land Unknown from 1957. This is a film in which an expedition goes into Antarctica. It has a crew of three men and one beautiful female. They travel through a foggy storm and end up in an area below sea level, which is a warm volcanic crater. They find a steamy tropical jungle with living dinosaurs and giant carnivorous plants. 
two things make this film fun. The toy helicopter and the T-Rex. The T-Rex is a man in a badly made suit. And it's so silly that it's hard not to laugh out loud. And the helicopter, well, that could have been from a Gamera film. Some of the other dinosaurs are just real lizards. And I often wonder how, in this film, using real lizards, how do they get them to fight? I doubt it's with an act of kindness. And as far as the girl in this film goes, with all the heat and humidity, how come her hair always looks so perfect? The film was directed by Virgil W. Vogel, who also directed such films as The Mole People and Invasion of the Animal People. But he was primarily a TV director, doing lots of TV between 1956 and 1996. Interestingly, he was the film editor on Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. This film is without any real suspense, but is fun to watch in its cheapness. And The Lost World does not meet with destruction at the end, so maybe they were thinking sequel. Anyway, I've been talking way too long and I need a break, so my friend Russell from Australia is going to take over here. Take it away, Russell. Greetings fellow Soyuloidians, Russell from Australia again with a few thoughts on some of the Lost World movies which have appeared over the last hundred years, and apologies if I cover the same ground as Jeff. First and foremost is the silent 1925 epic The Lost World, closely based on the 1912 novel by famed writer Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This told of the expedition by Professor Challenger to explore a vast plateau in South America which had been hurled upwards hundreds of millions of years ago, and was clearly inspired by the real lost world of Roy Rama, which at that time was largely unexplored. Once there, they encounter vast herds of dinosaurs, and after numerous adventures with reptilian denizens and assorted ape men, they manage to return to London with a captive brontosaurus, which breaks loose and causes havoc in London, before swimming down the Thames back to its South American homeland. While having a top-line 20s cast of Bessie Love, Lewis Stone and Wallace Beery, the movie's true stars are the dinosaurs animated by the legendary Willis O'Brien, using his ingenious stop-motion process where small metal armature models covered with rubber skin are painstakingly moved frame by frame on tabletop miniatures onto which live-action actors were matted in to react to the giant superimposed creatures. This technique was perfected a few years later in King Kong by O'Brien and further adapted by other stop-motion animators in later years such as Ray Harryhausen, Jim Danforth, Dave Allen and Phil Tippett until superseded by CGI digital effects in the 1990s. One of the things about Lost World is how many dinosaurs there are. Most movies only have a couple but this movie has whole herds of them. The Lost World was fought lost for many decades there only being a 50-minute home movie version, but in the 1990s, a complete print was found released on DVD. It was also the world's first in-flight movie, being presented on a biplane airliner by Doyle himself. Doyle actually preferred Professor Challenger to his more famous Sherlock Holmes and used him in several other stories. This seminal film kickstarted the Lost World genre and has directly and indirectly influenced many other films and has been remade multiple times. The most well-known remake was in 1960 by Irwin Allen, famous for his 60s sci-fi TV series and 70s disaster movies. 
This time, Claude Rains essayed the role of Professor Challenger, assisted by Michael Rennie, David Hedison, Jill St. John, Vitina Marcus and Fernando Lamas. The plot is rather more hokey this time, adding cannibals, stagey cave sets, a fortune in diamonds and a sexy native girl to the mix. What the film is best remembered for, however, is again the dinosaurs, but not in the same way as Willis O'Brien's were. Lacking the budget for stop motion, Alan stuck assorted frills and horns on real lizards and alligators and set them at each other, a trick earlier used in Flash Gordon serials, the 1940s One Million Years BC, and the 1950s Journey to the Centre of the Earth. If you're not a member of Animal Lib, you can kind of live with this, but Alan then recycled this footage over and over again in his 1960s TV series, with the lizards threatening the Seaview, the Robinson family, Doug and Tony, and the Land of the Giant guys, and finally turned up in the movie Amazon Women of the Moon as an in-jokey tribute. A cut-down remake of Lost World was actually made in Voyage to the Sea episode Turn Back the Clock. After rescuing a half-crazed survivor of a diving bell accident who babbles about monsters in the Antarctic, the Seaview surfaces in the icy wastes only to find a tropical hidden world populated by dinosaurs, cannibals, funny caves, etc, etc, etc. David Hedison dons his Lost World costume again to encounter a giant luminous spider, this time with Yvonne Craig instead of Jewel St. John, and Vitina Marcus returns as a sexy native girl, only to nick off and presumably be killed by the big volcanic explosion that destroys the lost stock footage world. The Lost World was further remade as a movie in 1998 and TV series in 1999-2002, and while more respectably done with CGI effects, they somehow lacked the oomph of the earlier versions. Ironically, neither production featured actor Brian Blessed, who would have been perfect casting for Professor Challenger, and also was a huge Lost World fan. Backtracking to 1951, there is Lost Continent. This updates the Lost World story with an expedition being mounted to find an atomic rocket which has crashed on a remote South Pacific island which, you guessed it, has a large mysterious plateau. Once there, the Explorer Dream Team cast of Cesar Romero, Join Hoyt, Whit Bissell, Hugh Beaumont, Sid Meldon and Aquanetta climb way too many rocks before encountering assorted dinosaurs whereupon the island is destroyed by an atomic explosion and they never do find that damn rocket. Sound compelling? Well, it might be, except it was produced by low-budget lenser Robert Lippert in a whole 11 days, with direction by Sam Neufeld, famed for directing hundreds of low-budget westerns. It does, however, have stop-motion dinosaurs, unlike the Lizard Drew Nellon productions, but these are probably the most down-market stop-motion dinosaurs ever, resembling model kits moved by enthusiastic kids in a 70s Super 8 epic. They're so bad they turn up a stock footage in Phil Tucker's infamous Robot Monster movie. This movie was used as the second season of Mystery Science Theater, where great play was made of the interminable rock climbing scenes. Also from the 1950s, 1957 in fact, was The Land Unknown, which also drew on Admiral Byrd's mysterious Antarctic land. Rather than give you my potted description, let's listen to the trailer. In 1947, the Byrd expedition to the South Pole reported a warm water oasis deep inside the icy Antarctic. This is the story of another expedition and of what might be found, what might happen today in that remote, unexplored last frontier on Earth. Unchanged since prehistoric times, the land unknown. Could man have survived in the dinosaur age of mighty monsters? 
shudder at history's most ferocious killer, Tyrannosaurus Rex. The battle of the great Stegosauri. Huge carnivorous man-eating plants. The incredible water monster, Elasmosaurus. Never get out of here, Alan. Never, never, never. Stop it. Do you hear me? Stop it. This doesn't sound like you. We're not lit yet. That's how I rule. Where's the wreck? Talk. You're gonna rot here. It actually sounds better than it is, as the dinosaurs are a mix of fighting lizards and a guy in a Tyrannosaurus suit. While I was searching for this film on YouTube, I found another movie I hadn't heard of from 1948 called Unknown Island, in glorious cine colour. In this, a bunch of guys on a boat land on an island and find a bunch of actors in Tyrannosaurus suits stomping around. Where do they get these dinosaur suits? Did Sears have a sale? Moving on to the 70s, this decade saw two lost world films from British company Amicus. Amicus had specialised in making poor man to horror films, but by the mid-70s it was wearing a bit thin, so they started adapting Edgar Rice Burroughs sci-fi stories from half a century before, uh, but did them as period pieces. The first was 1974's The Land That Time Forgot, where survivors from a merchant ship torpedoed by a World War One U-boat team up with their captors when they arrive at the uncharted island of Caprona, inhabited by dinosaurs and cavemen. After the usual adventures, plus a mutiny by the U-boat crew, the volcano erupts, the U-boat is destroyed, and survivors Bowen, Tyler and Lisa Clayton move across the island to face an uncertain future. Burroughs' story is clearly based on Doyle's, but with pulpy heroics, and Doug McClure is the two-fisted hero, with Susan Penhallian as the girlfriend and Anthony Ainley as the wicked German officer. The special effects were by FX legend Derek Meddings, who had done most of the work on the Anderson TV series of the 60s, and would go on to work on the big-budget Bond and US superhero films Superman and Batman. Amicus had a far smaller budget, a quarter million dollars according to producer Kenneth Connor, which in the mid-70s was not a lot, and so while the submarine and miniature work was well handled, the dinosaurs were a mix of full-size partial props and glove puppets, giving a much more limited scope than that from a contemporary Harryhausen film. The film did well, however, leading to the 1977 sequel, The People That Time Forgot, where an expedition searching for Tyler arrives but their biplane is forced down by pterodactyls and they wander around amongst dinosaurs and cavemen until a sexy cave girl takes them to Tyler who has been held prisoner by the samurai like Nagas. However, the volcano goes off and they all escape at Tyler who valiantly sacrifices himself to save the others. Sadly he didn't manage to save Amicus which folded before the movie was released but still got wide distribution and thanks to co-partner AIP. Amicus probably chose to do the movies of period pieces as Lost Plateaus, Islands and Continents were looking a bit unlikely by the 1970s, but it was still possible to do a similar movie by setting it on an alien planet. 
This, I think, is the reason behind 1977's Planet of the Dinosaurs, where a starship crashes on an Earth-like alien world and the survivors are threatened by a variety of Saurians, until they learn to fight backs and finally establish themselves on their new world. Nearly all of the film's very limited budget was spent on the quite good stop-motion dinosaurs, much of the chagrin of the cast, some of whom never got paid. The film did not get theatrical distribution, but turned up on TV and got a video release, and even won a 1980 Saturn Award in the Best Film Produced for Under $1 Million category. In 2010, it got the full Rift Tracks treatment, so it may yet be featured on its own Celluloid Days installment. Thanks, Russell, and you're right, we did cover some of the same ground, but I think you had a lot of information that, well, I didn't have, and so it's okay. You know, next time we do this, we talk about a, a long history of a certain type of film, I think me, Russell, and possibly Nancy will get a little organized ahead of time and figure out who's going to do what. But anyway, thanks, Russell. In 1959, James Mason, Pat Boone, and Arlene Dahl journeyed to the center of the Earth. This classic was a lighthearted adventure film loosely based on the Jules Verne story. This is really not one of my favorite films. I mean, Pat Boone singing? I mean, some people, I guess, like that, but it's not my cup of tea. And again, I feel sorry for the monitor lizards that had to suffer with fins glued to their backs. Although James Mason is always great. Here is the most amazing of all possible worlds. You'll see man-eating vines that lure their prey. Spiders as tall as trees. Hair-raising attack by prehistoric monsters. return to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World in 1960. This was produced by Irwin Allen, the master of disaster. It stars Michael Rene, Jill St. John, David Hennessy, Claude Rains, and Fernando Lamas. Now apparently Irwin Allen bought the rights to the book and he had high hopes of being faithful to the novel and he was going to use Willis O'Brien to create groundbreaking special effects. The problem was, 20th Century Fox was putting all their money behind Cleopatra starring Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, and Rex Harrison. So the budget was slashed and he was only given one and a half million dollars. Now that might sound like a lot, but to put it into perspective, Elizabeth Taylor was paid one million to be in Cleopatra. So O'Brien left the project, and again lizards, iguanas, and crocodiles, affixed with miniature horns and fins, were used. This is basically the same story as the silent film, with Professor Challenger and the gang setting out to prove that dinosaurs exist. Now along with the so-called dinosaurs, the film features cannibals and a large fluorescent green spider. And again, seeing lizards forced to fight, held up by wires and even one forced to struggle in what was supposed to be lava, is just sad. Now, I've never read Doyle's original story, but I did read that in his version, there are no women. But in this, of course, you have to have women, so two were added. That might seem like a good thing, but not the way they are used here. I mean, Jill St. John, she's wearing pink and carrying around a poodle, and she's more of an inconvenience to the men. And of course, she's basically there to be a love interest. There's also a native woman who is there just to be eye candy and, I guess, to be another love interest. And don't get me started on how they portray the natives. 
Let's just say I found this film to be a bit racist and sexist. But luckily, we still have the volcano erupting at the end. Another movie based on a Jules Verne story is Valley of the Dragons from 1961. It's based on Verne's novel Off on a Comet. Apparently, this novel was never released in the U.S. due to anti-Semitism. The film features a narrator who tells us at the beginning it's a Jules Verne story. Why, I don't know. But from what I've read, it is very loosely based on the book, with only one out of the 36 characters from the book making it into the movie. It's a weird one. Two men, an Irishman and a Frenchman, are about to duel over a woman when a comet suddenly flies in and sweeps them up and takes them to an unknown land, a different planet. And from that planet, they can clearly see Earth. Yes, you're right. I can see the British Isles, Spain, the coast of Africa. There's only one explanation that fits all the facts as we know them. It's beyond all belief, yet it must be. A heavenly body, a small planet, or a comet, perhaps, collided with the Earth and bore us into space, carrying an envelope of the Earth's atmosphere with us. It's incredible. Of course it is, but believe me, this is the only explanation that makes sense. Yes, they travel by comet, and the characters don't understand how, and frankly, neither do I. And in this new land, they meet ape men who are more ape than men. There, of course, are lizards, iguanas, and crocodiles made to look big. There's a huge spider. But you know, these men who are ready to kill each other early on soon become friends. Now they get separated and each one meets a beautiful woman, one brunette and one blonde, each with wonderfully clean and combed hair. There's some fighting, some rescuing, then a volcano explodes, killing a few people. Now I've always thought that an erupting volcano would cause horror and destruction for days, weeks, or even months, but not this one. It's all over in a few minutes and everything's good. I actually enjoyed this film, but again, that reptile thing just nags at me. I don't like it. This film was done on a small budget, but looks better than it should because they used the jungle set from Columbia's The Devil at 4 o'clock, stock footage from 1 million years BC, and a spider from an earlier 1956 film, World Without End. Also in 1961, we have another Jules Verne adaption, Mysterious Island. This wonderful film is about prisoners from the American Civil War who escape in a balloon and then find themselves stranded on a remote island. On this island, they find all types of strange large animals. But of course, the story is of four men. You can't have that, so they find a beautiful girl or two washed up on the beach. One of these ladies is Beth Rogan, a beautiful young woman who is dressed in a wonderfully skimpy skin dress. The filmmakers knew what they were doing with her. It also stars Michael Craig, Joan Greenwood, Michael Collins, Gary Morrell, and Dan Jackson. The film has some fantastic stop-motion animations created by the legendary Ray Harryhausen, including a large crab and a colorful chicken. And I was really impressed by the scene where a man jumps on the back of the chicken. I thought for 1961, it looks pretty fantastic. 
A fun but not logical scene is when they come across a giant honeycomb with a giant bee. Now they've been on the island for quite a while, so it seems a little unrealistic that they hadn't noticed large bees around. Now if you think about it, there should have been a swarm of bees. And since they are the size of cows, you would think somebody would have heard their buzzing. I mean, in my neighborhood right now, the sounds of cicadas up in the trees is almost deafening. Anyway, they meet Captain Nemo, played by the always wonderful Herbert Lom, and together they work to get off the island because, you guessed it, a volcano is ready to erupt. In 1962, we have the Soviet science fiction film Planeta Burr. And I have no idea if I pronounced that correct. But this is the film that Roger Corman used to make his films, the 1965 Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet and the 1968 Voyage to the Planet of the Prehistoric Women. Both of the Corman movies are frankly a mess. And to be honest, I never watched the Russian film even though it's available on YouTube. I'll have to one of these days. But both the Corman movies... They're almost unwatchable. Oh, Roger, you'll do anything for a buck, won't you? Anyway, it's the story of cosmonauts who land on the planet Venus and find themselves in danger from various monsters they find on it. In 1968, Hammer Films got into the game with a film called The Lost Continent. Now, this shouldn't be confused with the 1951 Lost Continent, or the 1961 film Atlantis, The Lost Continent. This film has nothing to do with those. This film is so strange and confusing, I don't know if I can describe it here. It's the story of an oil freighter on the sea who has run from customs and is carrying tourists and canisters of a strange substance that explodes when it gets wet. That doesn't sound like a very smart plan, but there you are. Anyway, everyone aboard seems to have a strange secret, including one woman who's carrying around millions of dollars in stolen bonds. Eventually, there's some fighting and attempted mutiny and other drama, but eventually they find themselves adrift in a mysterious land full of monsters, conquistadors, and killer seaweed. It stars Eric Porter, Hildegard Neff, Neff, Susanna Lai, and Tony Beckley. It's just so wonderful in its weirdness. It begins with a song that has no business being in a film like this. For moments, it sounds more like a soap opera with plenty of exposition given by each character to let us, the audience, know that all isn't right. You're exactly the same as your mother was. Oh, no, not that again. Well, have you or haven't you? You're nothing but a cheap little... Don't you say it, don't you dare. You're the last person to accuse me. You with your nurses, secretaries, yes, even your patients. How dare you talk to me like that? What you should remember, Daddy, dear, is that it was you that had to get out of that African hellhole, not me. It was your unprofessional habits that got the police onto us, not mine. And it was you that got struck off, not me. Yes, and it was you that made Mummy what she was. It takes a while, but eventually we get to see silly rubber monsters that cause us to laugh more than scare us. 
There's also people who walk around with balloons tied to their shoulders and on the bottoms of their feet so they don't sink into the bog. All very strange. So much of this plot makes no sense, but is great fun just the same. I'm sure this is one of the films that taught Hammer to stick to Dracula and Frankenstein. I'm not really sure if this fits into the Lost World theme, but there is the Valley of Gwangi from 1969. Gwangi is sort of, uh, well, it's in between a giant monster film and a Lost World film. Cowboys at the turn of the century who work for Buffalo Bill's Wild West show find an area of the Old West that still has dinosaurs. So they capture an Allosaurus and name him Guanji and use him in the show. Of course, Guanji manages to get free and causes all kinds of problems. The film stars James Franciscus, Gilda Golan, Richard Carlson, Lawrence Nasmith, and Frida Jackson. It's a classic with wonderful stop-motion effects by the one and only Ray Harryhausen. In 1970, we have a Czechoslovakian version of Jules Verne's Off on a Comet called On the Comet. I've never seen it, but the trailer is on YouTube, and it looks fantastic. There are great shots of a fish with legs walking around that made me laugh. In 1974, Doug McClure is in Land That Time Forgot. This film takes place during World War I, as a German sub blows up a passenger ship. The few survivors get aboard the sub, take it over, lose control, take it over again, and eventually everybody has to work together when they enter a land of lush vegetation where dinosaurs still roam. I like the fact that they shoot, kill, and eat a dinosaur without ever worrying about it being edible. And of course there's a volcano eruption. But it's got Doug McClure, so you know it's going to be good. Doug also starred in At the Earth's Core from 1976 with Peter Cushing and Caroline Monroe. Cushing plays a British Victorian scientist who invents a travel machine that bores into the Earth. Taking McClure with him, they dig deep underground to find a land full of prehistoric beasts and cavemen. The land is ruled by giant telepathic flying reptiles. I kid you not. But really, aren't the names Cushing, McClure, and Monroe enough to make you want to watch the film? And if you want more Doug McClure, he comes back to star in the sequel to The Land That Time Forgot in a film called The People That Time Forgot. In this film, a British expedition finds Doug and they all wind up in a hidden prehistoric world. In 1974, there was the Walt Disney produced The Island on Top of the World. I've never seen this, but apparently explorers in 1907 discover a lost colony of Vikings up in a mountain in the Antarctic. And I see by the trailer that there's an erupting volcano. And lastly, we have the incredible cheesy Planet of Dinosaurs from 1977. To be honest, I've only watched the Rift Tracks version, and from what I've seen, it's not good. A spaceship gets lost and is forced to make an emergency landing on a strange planet that looks quite a bit like Earth. But it isn't. This world has bloodthirsty dinosaurs. There's lots of walking in this film. They walk and walk, rest, then walk and walk some more, with the occasional survivor being eaten by a dinosaur. It's a very low-budget film, so I'll give it some slack, but I must say, and I hate to be rude, all the actors sort of look like they're straight out of a 1970s porn film. Not that I would know what those people look like, but anyway, there's some pretty good stop motion effects, and I'm assuming that's where all the money went. 
And I think I'm going to stop there at the end of the 70s. After all, this episode's a bit too long anyway. The 80s and beyond will have to wait for another day. You know, the Lost World-style films are still being made today, but, you know, they have all that CGI and fast-paced, slick editing, and, hey, where's the fun in that? Jim, you saw the size of those prints. How are we going to deal with an animal that big? Are we going to let it pick the time and place it decides to kill us? We've got to hunt it down now in its lair and kill it. Jim, you're crazy. How are we going to kill a thing that big? That gun wouldn't even kill the little beast. It's an animal. A dumb animal. We're rational thinking human beings. We'll find a way. A little bit before I go. I had a little fun with some of these films, but you know, I enjoyed watching most of them. And those low-budget films with their cheesy special effects are, are just fun. Most of them were made in a sincere attempt to make a suspenseful, thrilling movie. And even if the makers of the film failed in the attempt, I still applaud the effort. But you know, so many people talk about the wonderful effects in something like Jurassic World or Avatar. And rightfully so, but when you have a billion dollars and 600 to 1,000 people working on these special effects and animations, it better look good. Most of the films I talked about today only had a handful of people working on it and almost no money, so there you go. Hey, next week I'm going to talk about forgotten film pioneers. Those people who helped turn filmmaking into what we have today, but have been forgotten about. I'm pretty sure there are many out there, and I don't know much about them, so hey, i got to start my research. I hope you'll join us. Now listen up. We have a Facebook page. I would love to read your comments there. It's called Celluloid Days. Please join us. I have a Twitter account. It's at celluloid underscore days. I post regularly there. And I'm always looking for film suggestions. The more strange and unusual, the better. The email address for the show is daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Daysofcelluloid, all one word. Email me for any reason, even if it's just to say hi. Well, I'd like to thank Russell for adding to today's show. Thank you, Russell. And, of course, to all of you who are listening, I really appreciate it. I'll be back next Monday, so until then, stay healthy. Bye-bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They had 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You know it's You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing.